Good morning. This morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse 24. We'll be finishing this chapter. This little section is rather famous. People, most people that are Christians or have uh, heard a lot of Bible teaching and read the Bible um, know this section because it talks about running the race in the stadium. That was an allusion to something that actually happened in Corinth. So we'll be looking at that. I want to begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for your mercy, which was extended to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we are indeed, as we trust in you, part of your family, part of the family of God. Give us wisdom and understanding from your word as we look into it together. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll begin with verse 24 here. Um, it begins with a rhetorical question. Do you not know that those who run in the stadium all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now, the rhetorical question implies that this is something that they should know and do know. Now, there's a background to this that uh, we need to realize, and that is that they actually had famous games that were held every other year in Corinth. There were actually four different types of games in the Roman Empire. The most uh, prominent one was the Olympics, which we still have. It wasn't always in existence, but it was at that time. But this was the second most famous and prominent game, and that was the Isthmian game, Games. And according to the schedule that happened every other year, the scholars that I've read said that probably there were games in 49 and 51 A.D. It was every other year on the odd years. So they did have a stadium. Now, this has a really long history. There were times when it didn't happen. They were moved elsewhere for political reasons. But right here, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, there were such games regularly held there in Corinth, the Isthmian games. The two events that we know they had was running and boxing. And that'll come up in Paul's text here running and boxing. Uh, I was a runner. I preferred to run and get smacked. <laughs> now, um, others are, have different skills. So you're supposed to know that. They do know that. It's a rhetorical question because of the games they were very familiar with. This will help also put together some of the other historical facts that we know about what was happening in Corinth. Notice the term run is there in this text three different times. I'm using the Lexham English Bible because I found it to be the most accurate in putting out the, before us the text as it was in the Greek. Now, there's a background to this. Let me kind of tie some of this together. Paul, in chapter 8 and earlier 9, basically in 9, had talked about his working with his hands, 
providing for his own needs, not depending on the church, foregoing being paid in order that he may not be tainted by some patronage from someone wealthy who would have an agenda that wasn't a gospel agenda. That wasn't the norm, but that was what he did. Now, we also know, if you want to turn here to Acts 18, 1 through 3, the, what Paul's business was, what he did to pay for his way. It says in Acts 18, 1 through 3, And after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them. Now, by the way, that command to leave Rome happened in 49 AD, which would have been one of the years they did have the Isthmian Games. And then verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. Now, there's a lot of material known about these games to which Paul refers, because other writers, both Jewish and Roman, mention these. And so there's, there's no lack of data. But some have pointed out, and I think correctly so, that it's uh, important to see the tent making. Now, what would happen when people from all around the empire came to compete in the games? There were way more uh, competitors and uh, people that were, came to watch that there would not be enough housing. So the way they would uh, find housing while they were there both the competitors and spectators was just stay in tents. So we have Priscilla, Quilla, and Paul making tents. So it certainly historically fits with the situation. Here's what Kiap and Rosner say about that. Certainly anyone who lived in Corinth would have known all about the games. Paul almost certainly would have done business with those visiting the games and probably with those competing in them as well. He may have made some of the tents in which many of the visitors stayed. So notice here, they know this, but the, the word run used three times, the third time's in the imperium. Only one receives the prize. Here's the imperative, run in such a way that you may win. Now we're going to make an application or several applications to this. And Paul will bring this out. And what he's talking about here is that the games were uh, an analogy for something that's important for the Corinthians and yes, for us. If you look at the context before and after this, we'll see that they had a lot of things that were distracting them from the prize, and I'll talk about the prize in, as we go forward here. They were distracted by false claims of freedom to do things that God forbids. We saw in chapter 6 that some in Corinth claimed that they, it was lawful 
All things are lawful. And they included in that, some of them, sexual immorality called pornea in the Greek. And then you go forward to a more recent topic that we were dealing with. They thought it was okay to go into the pagan uh, idolatrous temples and have table fellowship with the pagans. So that, they thought, was part of their freedom as well. Because we all have knowledge, and we know that there's no real God but one, and the idols are nothing, so we can dine with the pagans at the pagan sacrifices. So, by implication, Paul's going to these games and showing them his own, as we'll get to it, his own behavior and practice, and there's, he wants them to see your way of living here in Corinth is not compatible with running in such a way as to win the prize. Now, we'll talk more about that. So the prize here, uh, as used in the Greek, is only used two times in the New Testament. And the other one is in Philippians 3.14. I have a application where we'll go to that passage. But I have a statement here to make, and then we'll go to the next slide. This one I, I put in my notes. The imperative, run, which is nicely translated here in the LEB, bringing out the adverb in such a way, the purpose clause, in order that you might win, which means to obtain the prize. And so this shows the intent of the analogy from the games. Now, here's the difference. Okay, let me explain the difference. The key difference is that we are not competing with other Christians to make them lose. We are striving together for the eschatological prize. This is about focus and discipline, not pushing aside other brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the difference. In the race, in the stadium, one wins. And that means the others lose. But in the race that Paul's using from that analogy, this doesn't require our brothers and sisters to lose. That's very clear from the context. In fact, that's part of what Paul is rebuking. Those who are strong, having no time for the weak. He won't tolerate that. This applies to every Christian. It applies to everyone who's striving for the eschatological prize. And ultimately, each one appears before the judgment seat of Christ. And we saw some things about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So there's a point to this, and we'll go on. I, I mean, some of this will cover a couple times. Let's go to verse 25. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 25. And everyone who competes exercises self-control in all things. Thus those do so in order that they may receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So notice the we. This isn't just for Paul, but yet there's an analogy and there's a contrast. In actual games, self-control is necessary. And there's a lot of great material about this 
And I, I'm very thankful to the Lord for the fantastic um, technical commentaries I have on the Greek and the of, of this whole section. And the historical background is quite amazing. But some of the things that have been written about this accurately call to mind what an actual athlete will do to compete in the games. So let's look at the tangible part of the analogy. Athletes will forego things just about anyone else would participate in. They'll focus only on training for the games. They will um, exercise, focus, go beyond to lay aside things other people do, going out dining here, going and doing this, having this entertainment, having this thing happening, and they'll focus on one thing. I want to win the prize at the games. And we know from the fact that these still happen, that's exactly how it goes. People will be incredibly disciplined, even non-Christians, of course, who want to win the prize. So by analogy, Paul is saying, we better think about that. That's what's going on in this verse. If they will go through all of the things we know they go through to win that prize, why is it that we won't give up anything looking for the eschatological prize, which is much greater? The Corinthians wanted all their privileges. Pornia dining with the pagans in the idol temple, doing whatever they saw fit, neglecting the people around them that were part of the body of Christ who needed their help. There's so many things wrong that Paul's correcting here. But notice the prize. We want to look at the focus on the prize. They do so to, in order that they may receive a perishable crown. And so the, te- the background is so well known Guess what their perishable crown was at the Isthmian Games? Dried celery turned into a wreath. It wasn't gold, it wasn't silver, it wasn't diamonds, dried celery. So when he says perishable, yeah, you bet. You win. Now, what they really were getting was the glory of having been the victor. The dried celery wreath. Earlier, I guess it was pine leaves, but at this particular time, it was dried celery. So they're competing for the perishable crown, but we an imperishable one. So there's the lesser to greater argument. The lesser is the perishable, the greater the imperishable. And another contrast, for them only one wins. All Christians run to participate in imperishable glory. Now, this self-control is a, a compound word in the Greek. I won't say it to you because it's one that we probably wouldn't think of again unless we run another verse using it. But it means, according to Bauer Danker, uh, Arnon Gingrich, to keep one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control. To keep your emotions, impulses, or desires under control. The athlete training for the games has the same desires to lay on the couch and eat pizza and watch the game 
that we might have, but ends up in the gym training. Now, when it comes to the spiritual life of eschatological glory, which is the prize for every Christian, we can't afford to become lax in the sense of being focused on serving the Lord by his grace and his mercy and caring for one another. And all Christians run to participate in imperishable glory. The great thing about it is we don't have to defeat one another to win. It's the opposite. We help one another so we all go across that finish line. The crown, I mentioned, was a woven dried celery. I'll say one scholar, Paul Gardner's commentary on 1 Corinthians is great. I love that. It's a, a very recent one, but a fantastic commentary. Here's what he says. Indeed, there is certainly no call here to any sort of asceticism. Asceticism means trying to beat yourself in your body so that you get more spiritual that way. Rather, he says, Paul is still addressing the rights that he has given up and the rights that the elitist should be content to give up. In other words, I have a right to get paid. I have a right to be treated a certain way. Paul gave that up. The elitists claim rights, as I said, to the pagan temples and the immorality and things that are forbidden. So he talks about self-control and sacrificial work. I think I've covered basically what Gardner says. So let's go to what Paul's testimony is because he switches now on verse 26 to the singular, first person singular. Um, I'm going to say some more about those rites in a bit and about asceticism, but let's look at what this text says. 1 Corinthians 9, 26, Lexham English Bible. Therefore, I run in this way, not as running aimlessly, I box in this way, not as beating the air. That's two events they had at those games, second only to the Olympics in the ancient Roman Empire, running and boxing. So when it comes to running, it's not aimless, and boxing, not beating the air. Now, there's discussion about whether this means shadow boxing, as a professional boxer would do in practice, or being actually in the ring and swinging wildly and missing. And since it's parallel to the aimless running, it probably is the latter, boxing and always swinging and missing and flailing your arms around, hoping you hit your opponent. That would be not good. So that's probably what that means. Paul uh, goes now to the singular. By analogy, he focuses here on being disciplined in his aim of obtaining the eschatological reward. The the Greek gets a little clunky here as far as we look at it because English works differently. There's a double negative. Let me explain that. Uh, The LEB does a good job of smoothing it out. Not aimlessly essentially negates a negative. Now, here's my statement. In our way of speaking, we, we would say... 
keeping my eye on the ball, to say it positively, keeping my eye on the ball here, focused on the eschatological prize. I can relate to that. I coached baseball, uh, volunteer youth baseball, for 10 years from the late 80s to late 90s. And uh, I love watching baseball and coaching it, and I threw a lot of pitches. But this is what we trained the baseball players. Keep your eye on the ball. You can't hit what you're not looking at. You can't catch what you're not looking at. And so as baseball players learn, we see somebody swing, and their head's out here, and the ball's coming over here. Major leaguers do that sometimes. Have you ever noticed now, they, if you watch this, they have this hyper-speed recording of video so they can slow it down so you see the seams turning? The best pitchers can throw the ball over 100 miles an hour. A medium pitcher just okay is throwing a 95. And if you watch the elite hitters and they slow it way down, it only takes just very little time to get to them. You watch him, the ball's hitting the bat, the eye is on the ball. It came 100 miles an hour, but it's on the ball when it hits that bat or when he hits it. That's how they succeed. Now, by analogy, that's the same basic idea, not aimlessly. For us, the analogy is the eschatological reward. And as I studied this in the last few weeks... I was also doing research on eschatology and some of the claims that are being made in popular evangelicalism and particularly some of the other movements out there that have really caught the attention of millions of people who are adherents to them. And I noticed that in case after case, they mock anybody who thinks this way. If you believe that you need to have an eschatological perspective of obtaining the eternal prize, you are literally mocked by many Christians. And the arguments that are used are ad hominem arguments. And what do I mean by that? If you are focused on the eternal, on being conformed to the image of Christ and obtaining glory and long for the return of Christ, you are a defeated escapist who can't really function in this life. You're not willing to get with the plan to bring the kingdom now, to defeat the pagans now, and so on and so forth. And they're, they're, they can be very uh, ruthless in their mockery of Christians who long for the return of Christ. And as I read these things, and in, as we see in our applications, that's very sad. Because I don't know how you keep your eye on the prize and then mock other Christians for doing the same because they're not any good, as far as those folks are concerned, in this life. Well, I don't think it's a valid Comparison, because frankly, those who long for the Lord Jesus, who love the Lord Jesus, who focus on pleasing him and serving him and the eschatological prize are beneficial to everyone around them. 
They're beneficial to their families. They're beneficial to their co-workers, and they care for others, and they care for one another, and they step up to the plate, to continue a baseball analogy, when those around them are suffering. I see that. And by the way, thank you. It's amazing how kind many of you have been to our families and people who are extended family who are suffering. That means a lot. And so it's flat out false to claim that if you live like Paul does, focused on the prize, you are saying that only thing that matters is the eschaton and you're of no good now, as they falsely claim to about some of us. So boxing the air here probably means swinging fruitlessly. Now, I'm going to skip another scholarly quote here, but I do want to mention that um, some people, when they look at this, start thinking, well, I need to beat my body into submission. We'll get into that more in the next slide. But I have a summary statement I wrote on my notes. The Corinthians prated their piety and spirituality. Remember, one of the things that's true about the Corinthian church was they looked down their noses at Paul and told him he was not spiritual enough for them. That really comes out in 2 Corinthians. The pneumatikoi, the spiritual ones, okay? So they paraded their own piety and spirituality, but failed to lay down their elitist claims to truly serve one another in love. They did not serve one another in love. We'll see that in chapter 11, where they were having their magnificent banquet while the poor folks had a lesser meal outside the uh, main meal. So they shamed people at the Lord's Supper. We'll see that in chapter 12, where Paul talks about the importance of the gifts that God gives to every Christian not just the ones that look flashy and exciting and uh, that every member is attached to the head and important and necessary. And we'll see that in chapter 13 when Paul talks about love, agape love, laying down your life for others. And so there's so much here that refutes elitism. So when Paul's talking about, I run in such a way as to obtain the prize, He's talking about the eschatological one, and he's also talking about what's important now to that end. The elitists also claim false liberties. Immorality, chapter 6. Eating in table fellowship with the pagans, chapter 7, and so on. Let's go to verse 27. Paul continues in his own testimony. But I discipline my body and subjugate it, lest somehow, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, let's, there's plenty to talk about here. I mentioned I wanted to talk about asceticism. Next week, I've, I've got the PowerPoint essentially laid out for next Sunday, where we go into chapter 10, and we're going to learn a lot about um, the exodus and the people coming out and were baptized in the 
cloud it in the water, and they ate the spiritual food. I'll talk about that next week. So we go to yet another issue that will come up. But what's happening is that in church history, this gets distorted rather quickly. Not that many hundred years after the death of the real apostles, the biblical ones, arose ideas that are not really found in Scripture, including the monastic movement, taking oaths, flagellation, um, self-deprivation to prove one's piety, not necessarily for an eschatological prize, but to prove that you're truly pious or to try to beat sin out of your own body. By the way, it doesn't work. You can hire a big brute with a, a whip to flog you. You'll still be a sinner. Sin is removed by the once for all shed blood of Jesus Christ and so on. So this happened. And then when we get into the Lord's Supper, uh, sacramentalism, sacerdotalism comes in. Uh, that's anachronistic. These things didn't exist when Paul wrote to Corinthians. They had an ordinary meal, but it was a meal dedicated to the Lord and his promises. So he disciplines his body. Here, body doesn't mean only the physical body. That's part of the analogy. The runner has to be disciplined physically and in many other ways to focus on the prize. But it also means the whole person either submitted to the Lord and serving him or the person who's uh, not going to these other things. Yeah, the body goes into the idol temple and has the meal. But it's the whole person tempted to do it. You know, in, uh, John talks about the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life in his first epistle. All of that is tied up in this. So I think the scholars correctly point out body here would be a metonymy, which would be a part to designate the whole person. So he disciplines his whole person, including his body, that somehow after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word for disqualified uh, is a word, uh, adokimos, which means disapproved, or disqualified is a good translation. I believe, and there's good reason to think so, that he's continuing the analogy of the games. If you don't run according to the rules, you're disqualified. Okay? And that means you can't win the prize because you're, 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 you're out. You decide rather than to pass the person you're running against, you trip them and then pass them. You'd be disqualified. And so Paul doesn't want to be disqualified from the race. So that should also be seen in real things such as are described in chapters 8, 10, and so on, as we'll see as we go forward. The whole person, as I say here, is subject to temptation. And we all know that. We all know that. So the oaths of poverty and oaths of um, chastity and oaths of obedience that arose in paganized Christianity later have no place in trying to be disciplined for the prize. It's a massive distraction from the gospel itself. 
The word for discipline is used only here, and uh, it means generally, according to Bauer, Danker, Arndt, Gingrich, to blacken an eye, give a black eye, strike in the face. So he's not going to let whatever blows comes his way as he fulfills his apostolic duties to stop him from the race. How does that apply to us? How can we do that without being ascetics? Let me explain. During the course of running the race, meaning striving toward the end times, the glory of Christ at the end of the race, the eschatological prize, we will get some black eyes. We will be hated by people that used to love us. We'll be rejected by family members. It says that in Matthew chapter 10. We will be uh, run over and passed over because we're Christians, perhaps in the business arena and so on. There are many things that will happen. But those who are running the race for the eschatological prize, the imperishable one that the Lord gives at the end, are not going to stop because of those type of blows. We're not going to say, well, this is really tough, and the people in the world that just go with the flow and do whatever they want to do, they're loved, they're rewarded, they're given the promotions, they're, the family's happy with them, and why do it this way? Why focus on being disciplined in this way? Well, the reason is because they're doing this for a perishable prize and we an imperishable. So we have to not allow these things to distract us. Here is uh, my statement that I put in the notes here. In church history, some have interpreted this as higher order of Christian who practices asceticism. This is not Paul's meaning here. Body in this context includes the whole person. I mentioned that. You know, I write these things down in case I forget. Then I preach them and I read them anyhow. But at least I didn't forget. Uh, Dr. Thistleton says the whole of life is at issue, including not simply the body's desire to eat meat or enjoy feasts, but wholesale attitude towards others, which determine day-to-day practical stances and conduct, which affects others as well as the Christian believer who needs to exercise self-control for their sake. The whole of everyday life, says Thistleton, must be held captive to the purposes of the gospel. May God forbid that we get distracted. And we can, but we've got to get back on track soon. We learn from Paul's teaching here that we should be lived disciplined lives focused on the eschatological, that's end time goal. The context will show this. Disqualified here, we can get into something about whether Christians can or cannot apostatize. That's what this word means. Uh, I've written articles about that. You can find it in Critical Issues. The goal here isn't to describe theoretical possibilities, but to motivate us not to apostatize. 
That's the point. This will get a hold of real Christians as we read it and we see what Paul said. And we'll say, I need to get focused on the goal. Let's look at it that way. Not, well, can a Christian lose their salvation? So that's what people like to talk about. I have a better idea. Don't do it. Stay with Christ and trust him. He'll keep those who are his. There are the Judases who will leave. That's how we know they were Judas. So I think I mentioned uh, disqualified. It's used in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. I'll read that to you. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and 6. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? But, Paul says, I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now, there, fail the test is adokimos, the same Greek word. To fail the test is to not be in Christ. To not be in Christ. To have false assurance. That'll be the next topic for, in First Corinthians 10. The wilderness wanderers who saw miracles and power that we haven't seen. Daily miracles. The manna was not normal, natural. Almost all of them failed the test. So it's a serious warning. So to be disqualified is to fail to obtain the eschatological prize. Now let's have some, uh, look at some implications and applications. The one prize for Christians is the inheritance of eschatological glory. Two, we must focus on the eternal goal throughout our lives in Christ and never give up. Never give up. Three, we must reject the values of the pagan world, which would take our eyes off the goal. Keep your eye on the ball. That's what Paul did. Focus. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. That doesn't mean the present doesn't mean anything. Because we have hope. We have joy. We have fellowship. We have the love of God, the gifts, the working of the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ that we're part of. And so let's look at that, what Paul says about it. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20 from the New American Standard Bible. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So here's some of the same terminology. We have the word for crown, Stephanos, and the wreath, which we talked about. So here we are seeing that Paul sees this eternal hope as something that gives us joy now. The, The joy of gathering with the Saints, gathering with one another, singing about glorious topics, about the greatness of God and his power and his glory, singing about forgiveness of sins, singing about 
of walking together with him and many other things that are revealed in scripture. That's joy we have now. And we do exalt and praise him. But the fellowship we have with one another, Paul says, you are our glory and joy. And the thing that broke his heart was when the people that he had dedicated time to a year and a half in Corinth turn against him and say, well, Paul, we have things you don't have. We found better people to follow and um, so on. So here we have the same idea. Hope in this context is certain due to God's promises. God promised eschatological glory. And I really thinking back when I was a new Christian and I listened to a lot of the gospel music and gospel quartet music. And uh, one of my first pastors was a, a gospel singer, was part of the Blackwood Brothers, and he was a piano player. He could do it all. But uh, the songs were about eternal glory. And then the elitists came along. Oh, you defeated Christians. Anybody that sings about the hope of glory, you're defeated. You don't have what it takes to win now. You're probably a loser. If you want to be a winner, you're going to have to get what you need now. None of this sweet buy and buy stuff for us. We're winners. But see, they're winning happens now in their minds when they're doing better than another Christian. The winning Paul's talking about happens when together we make it through the race to the eschatological prize and we enjoy that we do it together in in hope and in joy and in mutual comfort. Don't let anyone tell you you're defeated because you long for Christ. There's so much of that. It's annoying to me, I got to admit. I was listening to the channel that has all those songs on, but it went away for a while because all they have is Christmas music now. So in January, I'll get my channel back. <laughs> Maybe you know what I mean. I don't really care about, you know, jingle bells or whatever. I don't know if they have that one. Hope in this context is certain. This isn't something lesser. Hope is certain. God who cannot lie made the promises. God isn't saying to you, if you're focused on eternal glory, you're a defeated Christian. No, he isn't saying that. The false teachers are saying that. Um, so the, the joy is the anticipation of the parousia coming. That's that word, parousia. And then there's another word, in the presence, which is a a more uh, unique word. It's a compound word, and it literally means in front of. And so this, in this context, means to appear before. In the presence, appearing before, actually seeing the Lord at the parousia, together with the Lord. That'll come up, 1 Corinthians 15. Exaltation is literally boasting. What is our boast? What is our source of pride? What what excites us? What are we looking for? The Lord at his coming. Keeping our eyes on the prize. And so it's parallel here to glory and joy. 
And it's, it's simply not true, dear ones. Don't be intimidated. It's simply not true. People who long for his appearing are not people who fail to do anything worthwhile now. It's a false dilemma. It's a false dilemma. You can long for his appearing and love the saints now and preach the gospel of repentance now and to care for the things that God calls us to, including our families, now. Hope or joy or crown of boasting. Stephanos, which is a crown, not made out of gold or silver or diamonds, but made out of our Lord's reward for those who love his appearing. It's eternal. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, this is Paul's testimony, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. So this word prize here is the same word used in 1 Corinthians 9.24. The prize, he presses on toward it. And uh, let me just read the context here. Uh, I'll read it to you. Philippians 3, 10 through 12. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Another statement right here of the same idea. Now here in Philippians, the eschatological end times glory, to see him, to be with him, to be with one another in glory. This is pretty amazing, and I'm... Uh, Eric mentioned he's been doing a podcast because he was injured on the ice last winter and had to rehab. And so he started watching people teaching eschatology on YouTube and found out that almost all of it was false. They had no, they were citing their own denominational traditions without looking at the text itself. And so he set out to correct that by now he's debating on, on YouTube, so appreciate that. We've got to start with the text. It really does ring hollow when pious-sounding preachers rebuke saints because they long for glory. No wonder when I was a young preacher in the early 80s, some of the dearest saints they were in their late 80s or 90s, went to visit, they were on their deathbed, went to the hospital, and they'd been subject to the same teachings I'd been in the 70s. Similar about, it's all here now. And you know what they said, one after another? What did I do wrong? How is it 
that the dear saints who love Jesus Christ are about to graduate for, to glory and they want to know, what did I do wrong? If there was any answer to it, is that you heard a lot of false teaching. And so we said, one lady, dear Grandma Ann, Grandma Ann, you didn't do something wrong. You're about to graduate to glory. The Lord loves you. You've served him. I pray that no one gets to that point and feels like they failed because we didn't tell them the encouragement and the promises that God has given. It's not our job to make the saints try to look to how great they can do in this life when eventually, if you don't die, you get old enough, it's kind of hard to be great in this life. Because the things you used to do with no problem, somebody's got to help you with. That's not failing. That's being one who persevered and stuck with serving the Lord. And when we need one another, we need one another. It's not a failure. 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. Quote, the Lord knows those who are his, unquote. And, another quote, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The context is very interesting. This came up in Sunday school as Eric was teaching this morning. The context were a couple of false teachers by the name of Hymenaeus and Philetus. 2 Timothy 2, 17 and 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and upset the faith of some. Interesting. Here's my take on this. We saw this in Philippians. In Philippians, Paul pressed on to attain to the resurrection of the dead. These false teachers claimed it already happened. That would make Paul a fool. Imagine, Paul, you're a fool. The resurrection already happened. Why are you pressing on for it? Wow. Dr. Yarborough says God's solid foundation is axiomatic in an understanding of God that views him as a sovereign administrating an eternal kingdom into which Paul, Timothy, and others are entering by means of faith in the gospel. Have you put your faith in Christ alone? All of this pressing on toward the end times, the eschatological prize Paul's talking about is meaningless if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you haven't trusted him alone. Christ, the eternal God, the Son, creator of the universe, virgin-born, it says in John that through the Son he created, Father created all things, who lived a sinless life, who predicted things that could only be accomplished by the supernatural power of God, such as his own resurrection from the dead. His sinless life was lived and his death atoned to avert God's wrath against our sin. No matter how glorious things may seem now, if we're not found in him, 
it'll all be for naught because we'll still abide under God's wrath. But if we trust Christ, whose blood was shed, who was raised from the dead, who appeared to many witnesses, who bodily ascended to heaven, who obstructed his apostles to teach repentance for forgiveness of sins, turn to him, trust in him, believe in him, receive the forgiveness of sins, and put your eyes on that eternal prize as you walk through this life. Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. I'll talk about Korah some more. Um, there's an Old Testament reference here. There, in, this, in this verse, there's a reference to Korah in number 16. I don't have time to go through the details. But basically, it came down to who spoke for God. Korah and company said, why should Moses speak for God? Well, maybe because God appeared to him at the burning bush, and God called him, and God came down and talked to him on Sinai, and God did all these works and appointed Moses as the leader. Korah said, no, we can all do that. We don't need Moses. Do you know what happened to Korah? The earth opened up and swallowed them. Right in. Kapluk, into the abyss. You can look up that up. Numbers 16, 5 through 32. If you want an interesting reading, Numbers 16, 5 through 32. Who speaks for God? God speaks for himself. How does he do through? Do so through the biblical writers. Moses and then the, the, his, the prophets of the Old Testament, Christ and the apostles and prophets of the New, as Eric so wonderfully shared last week. So... God speaks for himself. One more slide here. 2 Timothy 4, 8. In the future, there is laid up for me, Paul says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Yes, I'll admit it. I'm on a mission to get love his appearing back into the church. Self-satisfied Americans are so happy with defeating somebody else in the business world or being better than somebody else or younger than somebody else or more handsome than somebody else or more articulate or more put together or this or that. No. We have to love his appearing and love the brothers and the sisters care about one another. That's what matters. It says in Titus 2, 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Epiphania. 1 Timothy 6, 14, that you keep the commandment without stain reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, Love his appearing. So Maranatha is about. It's a good thing. That was totally new to me. When I was born again in July 1971, went to a little gospel church, and they were singing about and preaching about the coming of Christ. I'd never heard that. I'd been to a liberal church that said, uh, we don't know 
heaven and hell, there's no hell. The good Lord, here's what they said. The good Lord will never send anybody to hell. And we, we know that God doesn't do miracles because miracles don't happen. And he never did miracles. So the stories in the Bible are to inspire us to be good people and live better lives. And so I quit going to church. Not because I was a Christian, because I thought I can be a non-Christian without the church helping me. And because uh, I already was that. But when I got to a gospel church, all of a sudden they're talking about the coming of the Lord. Where'd that come from? What came from the Bible? Yes, it came from the Bible. I just showed you. It's in the Bible. We didn't make it up. We didn't come up with this because we get tired of being in the battle. Because we're Paul is talking about fighting the good fight of the faith, staying focused. We are in the battle. And we'll continue to be. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy to allow us to see these things and to hear these glorious promises. And Lord, may we be compassionate to one another, caring for people who are in a stage of life where that's what they need. May we be kind and loving and assuring. And may we lay aside the encumbrances, the lies, the things that will take us away from the focus. And may we keep our eye on the eschatological prize. Thank you for what you've done for us, and thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.